We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about it. I'm Caitlin Chin, I work at CSAS, and I'll be your host for this podcast. Hi, welcome back to the CSAS This Does Not Compete podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Chin, and today I am here with Nate Freed-Wessler, who is here to talk us through some of the thorny issues surrounding data brokers. Generally speaking, these are companies that profit from sharing or selling personal information. And so it's not hard to imagine how data brokers can raise very real privacy, civil liberties, and national security concerns, especially if they allow government agencies to get their hands on geolocation or other types of data without the formal use of a warrant. And that's a topic of a new CSAS report Surveillance for Sale, the Underregulated Relationship Between U.S. Data Brokers and Domestic and Foreign Government Agencies, which is currently published on the CSES website. Now, I want to turn things over to you, Nate. You've led litigation and advocacy around surveillance and privacy throughout your career with the ACLU Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project in various roles, including as a field organizer, legal fellow, staff attorney, and now deputy director. So I was wondering if you could start by telling us about some of the trends that you've observed throughout the course of your career. I think it's safe to say that technology has drastically increased the scope of data collection. And now in 2023, data collection has become almost this normalized part of life. So how have modern developments in technology or even society affected the way in which law enforcement agencies conduct surveillance or access data from companies? It's been huge changes over the past couple decades. It's a little obvious to say that technology is always advancing and the amount of data about each of us is always increasing. And surveillance technologies are also always developing. And so government agencies have an ever greater scope of access to our private details. And that's in, in various ways. You know, Some of it is through direct use of surveillance technologies, uh, cell phone tracking technologies, uh, facial recognition technology, which we're tremendously concerned about, the privacy implications of, uh, and others. And then a, a lot of our concern is around the ability of government to access huge troves of information about us held by so-called third parties, held by companies of one sort or, or another that have gathered our information, sometimes directly from us with our knowledge, and sometimes aggregated our information from other companies. These are the data brokers that you started out talking about. One of the the trends that repeated things that we see that really can make it hard for courts or for lawmakers or regulators to get a handle on this problem is that it's often shrouded in tremendous secrecy, right? Time and again, we have seen the public and civil society and even the courts learn about particular government surveillance technologies or data access techniques years after they started being used which means that the law is always scrambling to catch up to what law enforcement in particular is, is doing. And that's not a really good situation because it means that you have investigators and government agencies sort of making up their policies internally without any scrutiny to start, often resulting in you know, really serious privacy violations without good guardrails. And then only once those privacy violations are 
years, sometimes even decades in, does the public and courts and defense attorneys and lawmakers and the press start to learn about it? And we start to be able to have the debate that we should be having in a democratic society about what the limit should be, whether a warrant is required, whether some techniques are too invasive, even with a warrant, and they should just be off the table. Once we have the information and can have those debates, we are often able to, to set the right rules that protect people's privacy while allowing you know essential government functions to happen. But when it's shredded in secrecy, we can't even have that debate. Great. In the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, ODNI recently declassified a report on the IC's acquisition of commercially available data. And even ODNI acknowledged that it might not have complete visibility into the commercial acquisition of data across its 18 units. Is there is there practical ways where we can perhaps increase transparency or accountability over the government's access to data? Well, I mean, there there are proactive things that we can require in in a couple of ways. You know, one are just reporting requirements, right? That Congress can impose and the agencies can can impose on themselves to give comprehensive but relatively high level information about what are the techniques being used, you know, what kinds of data are being accessed, what are the uses to which it's put, and it's totally possible to have those kinds of top kind of level transparency yeah. without giving up the goods on a particular active investigation. That that's the thing that yeah. you know you often hear intelligence agencies or law enforcement worried about. You know, we don't want to tip off the subject of this investigation that we're onto them with this technology. You know, I think that's often way overblown, but even taking that at face value, that's not really what we're talking about often. But also there need to be much more robust disclosures to people who are being accused and prosecuted in our criminal enforcement system so that they and their defense attorneys know how the government gathered information about them, whether it was using uh, or, or brought them into suspicion, whether it was using something like face recognition technology, or whether it was through warrantless access to location information from data brokers, and only through robust disclosures. That way, do we get the opportunity for courts to weigh in on suppression motions where someone accused of a crime can argue that their Fourth Amendment rights were violated, and then it can be adjudicated through, through the courts until there's really much more robust disclosure by prosecutors of what law enforcement and sometimes intelligence agencies did to gather information. We can't even have that adversarial judicial process that our whole system really relies on. Right. And without those disclosures, a lot of our knowledge of data broker contracts with government agencies comes from media reports or FOIA requests. And actually, I believe your organization, the ACLU, published numerous documents related to DHS purchases of cell phone location information, which I believe was a risk FOIA lawsuit. Is that is that right? Yeah, that, that's right. Shortly after the Wall Street Journal did initial reporting a couple of years ago about a few parts of DHS buying what seemed to be very large quantities of cell phone location data, people's location points over time from data brokers, the ACLU submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to ICE and CBP, Customs and Border Protection, and to DHS headquarters, seeking a whole bunch of, of types of records about contracts with these data brokers, about the types of uses, the types of data, the volume of data, whether there are any internal policies or guidelines in place to limit access or to limit use. There's very little public information available. It's really only what an intrepid Wall Street Journal reporter have been able, or a pair of reporters have been able to, to turn up. It took us, we had to file a lawsuit to enforce that request. That lawsuit is still ongoing. We're still contesting some of the withholdings from the agency. But last summer, we put out a large number of documents that we'd obtained as of then that revealed a little bit more. And, and what little we learned was pretty shocking 
about the scope of collection of this data. Uh, some of it was promotional materials from a couple of the data brokers that are selling access to the cell phone location data to the government, bragging about how much data they're sucking up. Uh, one of them was talking about how it had access to 250 million phones worth of data, which accounted for 15 billion location points per day, which is a staggering amount of data that can chart out people's movements all over the place, right? Our, our just habits of life, who we meet with, where we go. And then on the, the flip side, we had documents that were trying to play down the privacy impacts, right? So you have access to humongous quantity of data, the whole point of which is to track individual cell phones and see who they belong to and what the owner is doing, while you have these agencies and the companies they're buying from also trying to say, well, don't worry, it's not actually that private. It's super powerful, very revealing, but not actually private because there's no name attached to this data. It's a, a, a mobile device ID, uh, not a phone number, not a name. And so it's anonymized, which is just facially ridiculous because the entire point of location data is to de-anonymize and to identify a person. And so uh, you had this very self-serving justification that we see throughout the documents for what we think is an incredible privacy violation and a real end run around a core protection of the Fourth Amendment, which is the warrant requirement. The ACLU litigated and we won a case in the US Supreme Court a few years ago about cell phone location data that requires a warrant when law enforcement goes to our cell phone company to get our location history. Right. So if the police want to compel AT&T to turn over a list of location points of everywhere I've been over a period of time, it's now clear that they have to go to a judge, demonstrate probable cause and get a warrant. What we seem to have here with these purchases from data brokers are law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies saying, oh, wait a minute, if we just skip AT&T and go to this other source that's selling it on the market, we can skip the warrant requirement. We can substitute some dollars for a judge's permission. And that that can't be the right outcome because the sensitivity of the data is, is equivalent, right? It is a whole series of location points about everywhere someone has been while carrying their cell phone over a potentially very long period of time. And it doesn't really matter what the source is. It's telling the government the same thing about you. Now, I want to go back to that court case you mentioned, but first I wanted to just touch upon these numbers. I was really struck by, you mentioned 250 million phones and up to 15 billion data points. Is that is that right? I had to double check Yeah, that, that, that's right. That's what one of these documents from one of the, the data broker companies selling to the government said. And it's, you know, the, the way... The way this works, it's it's probably worth explaining like where this data is coming from, right? So most people today have smartphones. Almost everyone has a cell phone, and most of us with cell phones have a smartphone. Yeah. And of course, we have lots of apps on our phones. Some of them come with the phone itself, and then lots of them we just download. Those apps, many of them are quote unquote free to the user, right? We just download them from the the Apple or the Google app stores. But of course, these are all being provided, well, with some exceptions, but mostly being provided by for-profit companies who exist to make some money. So if they're not making money with a subscription fee from the user, they're making money from somewhere else. And that often is by repackaging and selling data that they learn from the user of the app. And there are lots of apps that are doing that with location data, among other types of information, which means that sometimes apps that you have no idea are really gathering location information, and sometimes apps that you know are gathering location information for one purpose, but you don't expect they're also selling it, right? Are marketing that data. They are purportedly anonymizing it, 
In other words, they are replacing your phone number or your name with a unique numerical identifier. And then they bundle it with you know, all the other location data that they have on every other user. Each one has its own unique, often usually has its own unique identifying number. And then these apps are selling that information to data brokers. Sometimes, often even, it's not even a kind of a transaction that the uh, the app has to do very affirmatively. What they do is they they sell the ability for the data broker to put code into the app itself that just exports the location information directly to the data broker. And so these these apps are making money by one way or another selling our location data. And then the data broker market is humongous and it's it's convoluted. Uh, it's very hard to to trace all the paths, but you have these layers of data brokers that are packaging and repackaging and selling and reselling this data. And sometimes it's sold to private buyers, insurance companies, a lot for advertising networks. But also there are some data brokers that have set themselves up really exclusively to sell to government agencies, whether it's intelligence agencies or to law enforcement. And they have access to a humongous quantity of Americans' location data and location data of people elsewhere in the world. So I have two very basic questions for you. First of all, why does the government need so much personal information? And second, who is most affected by this mass collection of location data? The government does not need so much personal information. There are two reasons, right? One is a practical reason, which is the, you know, the kind of fire hose problem when, when there's just too much data, it gets hard to find anything useful. And we've, you know, we've seen internal government reports critical of intelligence agency failures, pointing to that as part of the problem, right? You just have humongous quantities of unstructured data, which become very hard to sort through. And that's, that's one kind of corollary benefit of the warrant requirement and the kind of requirements of individualized suspicion that our criminal enforcement system are supposed to be predicated on. Not only is it supposed to protect individual privacy and people's due process rights, but also it should focus law enforcement investigations in the places where there's the best reason to, to look, right? Instead of, you know, gathering information about everybody in the hope that maybe you'll find some suspicious stuff on someone, you have to identify your suspicion about someone first and then get information about them only. And usually with a warrant from a judge that limits the scope of the search. So there's a practical reason why too much sometimes isn't helpful. But even if all the data sometimes is going to be helpful to the government. And for sure, you know, there will be situations where some government agent knowing everything about everyone will let them find the quote unquote bad guy who they think might be out there. Uh, that's just not how our democratic system is supposed to work, right? The, there's a reason again for limitations on investigations. There's a reason for putting some friction in the system through the warrant requirement in the Fourth Amendment and other guarantees against suspicionless dragnet searches of people, right? Like police would probably solve some more crimes if it was legal for them to bust down the door of every house in the neighborhood looking for some suspicious or illegal material. But they can't do that. They have to get a warrant to individually demonstrate probable cause about a particular person in their house having evidence of a particular crime. And then they can go do a narrow search. And here, when you have dragnet collection about everyone, it just violates that fundamental principle of limited intrusions into our private lives. And this data can tell a ton about us, right? It can chart out, you know, of course, where we live, where we spend our days, 
where we stop off on the way home from, from work or school, you know, whether it's a liquor store or an AA meeting or a house of worship or a friend's house or psychiatrist's office, you name it, could chart out our associations, right? Who we meet with for how long, what kind of political meetings we go to. Everything about us is really deducible from our location information. And that affects everyone. You know, to go to the second half of your, your question, that affects everyone in some way, right? We all have something that we want to keep private, not to say we all are, you know, hiding illegal activity by any means, right? But there's a reason why everyone makes contextual decisions about what they want to share with other people, even loved ones, let alone the government. Nobody's life is supposed to be an open book. And yet this is the a kind of data collection technique that threatens to just throw open all of our privacies of life to government scrutiny. But saying that everybody is affected doesn't mean that everyone's affected equally by any means. And, and of course, we well know that not everyone is policed in the same way in this country, right? That people of color, members of communities of color, political dissidents, members of other minorities are over-policed, are targeted by law enforcement over and again for abusive searches and abusive arrests. And so uh, when you have easy government access to this humongous quantity of highly sensitive, highly private information, we know it's going to be used disproportionately in policing communities that are already over-policed. And, you know, that may look different for different law enforcement agencies, right? When we're talking about ICE or CBP, parts of the Department of Homeland Security, part of what they do, a big part of what they do is border enforcement and immigration enforcement. And so you're going to have members of border communities who are subject to more data collection if what these agencies are purporting to do is to look for phones coming across the border outside of border checkpoints, well, that's going to sweep up people living in border communities too. And you shouldn't be under suspicion just because you live you know, on the El Paso side of, of the border within a few miles of, of the border. That's a perfectly normal and legal place to live and, and should not subject you to more surveillance than someone who lives, say, in Omaha. If we're talking about the DEA, then we're going to have members of Latina and Black communities who are being subject to, to more data collection. And, and as a result, we're going to have a continuation of disproportionate investigations and arrests and convictions based on unjustified intrusions into privacy. Nate, I want to go back to that landmark case about the privacy of cell phone location records that you mentioned, Carpenter. The United States, which you argued before the Supreme Court back in 2017, so it's been almost exactly five years since the decision was released. How have government agencies interpreted this ruling and others when purchasing access to smartphone geolocation history? Has this affected their purchases or not? So government agencies seem to have concluded that if they purchase this data, instead of trying to compel a company to turn it over with a court order, they're not subject to the Carpenter decision, right? So Carpenter it was a, a criminal appeal where the ACLU came on at the Supreme Court level to help represent Mr. Carpenter. And police there had gone to his cell phone service provider to get several months worth of location history in the course of investigating some robbery and shoplifting crimes in the greater Detroit area. Uh, and what the Supreme Court said is uh, when you want to go force a cell phone company to turn over someone's location history, you have to go to a judge first and demonstrate probable cause and get a particularized warrant. And the, the court's explanation for why that is relied uh, in substantial part on the sensitivity of our location information and also on the kind of involuntariness of sharing it with our cell phone companies, right? The government's argument had been, well, look, you choose to buy a cell phone and you choose to sign up for cellular service on that cell phone. 
And as a result of that, your phone company has to be able to communicate with your phone using the cell towers. And so the company is going to know which tower and which antenna on that tower your phone's connected to at any given time. And you've just, you've opted into sharing your location information with the company and therefore it's no longer yours. It's the company's business record. And if the government goes to the company without a warrant, too bad for you. You gave up all your Fourth Amendment privacy interests in this data. Uh, the Supreme Court roundly rejected that that rationale. And in a strong opinion for a majority of the court written by Chief Justice Roberts, the, the court explained that people do not voluntarily share this information in any meaningful way, right? Like everyone needs a cell phone today at a very practical level. We have to carry cell phones for work, for family, for emergencies, for social life, for other reasons. And once you have a cell phone, unless you turn it into a you know, an airplane mode paperweight, which is not very useful as a cell phone, you can't avoid the phone company knowing your location. But that's not opting into government surveillance, the court said. And that's particularly true when we're talking about such sensitive location information about everywhere you go over basically every hour of every day. And so the court said, you need a warrant. What the government says in this context where they're buying the information is, they seem to have a few rationales. But one is they try to say, well, actually, there is voluntariness and consent here because when you download an app on your phone, uh, you have to agree to it getting your location information. Uh, and so you're actually opting in to sharing your location with apps in a way that maybe you weren't volitionally opting in to sharing it with the phone company. You know, I think that's that's dubious at a kind of realistic level, right? How many people read the fine print of the terms of service and the privacy policy on every app they download? But even if it's obvious to you that the app is using your location, say it's a weather app or something that, you know, is serving up information based on where you are in the world, that doesn't mean that you are somehow okay with or even have knowledge of the fact that that information is going to be sold on into commerce to make the app some money and going to end up in government hands because they buy a chunk of it. So there's this fiction of consent, which I don't think accords with how people actually understand the use of their data. And then there also you also see some government justification based on the fact that these data brokers or this data broker market is selling this information to basically anyone who wants to buy it. So it might be to digital advertising networks, it might be to insurers or some kind of other digital services economy companies, uh, or it might be government. And so the government's theory goes, well, if everyone else can get access to it, we should be able to get access to it too. It's just out there in the public and we shouldn't have to go to a judge. You know, I think that's uh, that's dubious for a kind of different reason, which is there are very good reasons why we have different rules for what the police can do, right? The police are limited by our Fourth Amendment, which applies to the government, not to private people, because the government has a unique power to investigate us and put people in jail. It can take away our liberty. And that's why there are special limitations in our system on police searches and investigations. And we we need those limitations in this context too. You know, these questions haven't really been litigated in the context of these data broker markets, but there are active efforts to get at it legislatively in Congress to just close off this whole ability of the government to argue that there's some pay for data exception to the warrant requirement. Yeah, and a lot of the information we have about data brokers has come out in the past couple of years between the media reports and the ACLU freedom of information lawsuit and then the recent OD9 report six years ago when you were arguing Carpenter, did you imagine that smartphone location data could become the commercial market that it currently is? No, I mean, we really weren't thinking about that at, at all. We were focused because 
this is what the facts of the case were on the cell phone companies, the cellular service providers. And, and they are prohibited by federal law, by the Federal Telecommunications Act, from selling customer location data without express affirmative opt-in consent of the customer. So there's a there's a, a very effective regime. Now, there have been abuses of it. There's been reporting that's shown that the companies weren't honoring the law all the time. But there's a, a pretty effective legal regime to protect our location data when it's sitting with those companies, right? There's also the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which dates to the 1980s, which prohibits cell phone companies, as well as companies like Google or Twitter, companies that are directly providing an electronic communication service to the public, prevents them from voluntarily turning over any of our data to the government. The government has to come with appropriate form of legal process, which for cell phone location data, we know is a warrant. Part of the problem with these data brokers is that once the data has left the app, which the apps are arguably, in many cases, the apps are certainly, and, and sometimes depending on what they're doing, it might be more questionable, but are usually regulated by that same statute, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which means the apps themselves would be violating federal law if they sold your location data to a government agency. What seems to be happening though, is the apps say, well, we're just selling to a data broker. And the data broker says, well, we are not regulated by the Electronic Communications Privacy Act because of ways in which the definitions in that statute work. And so we can sell this to anyone. Right, we don't require a legal process, and if we want to make money by selling it to the FBI or the DEA or ICE, we're going to make our money that way. And so there's there's this real statutory mismatch where there's a a data market that just nobody imagined in the 1980s or the 1990s when the Electronic Communications Privacy Act and the Telecommunications Act were were passed or updated. And you know, Congress can easily step in and fix that at a statutory level, which would then just eliminate the need to figure out the constitutional questions that take a long time to work their way through the courts. Now, we've talked a lot about location data, but government agencies can access a really wide range of detailed personal information from the private sector, including biometrics or face images. And I know the ACLU has been pretty busy since Carpenter. So I was wondering, could you talk about the ACLU's lawsuit against Clearview AI that resulted in a settlement agreement? What were some of your biggest takeaways from this case? So Clearview AI is a, a company that, it's a face recognition company that has structured itself in a unique way in the United States. So uh, there are lots of companies that are selling face recognition technology to the government and to private entities, to banks, retail stores, sports stadiums, you name it. Every other company other than Clearview in the US has developed an algorithm, a face matching algorithm, but they require their subscriber to bring the face recognition database, the matching database, right? So for a law enforcement agency, that might be an arrest photo database, right? Mugshots, or it might be if the state police agency, it might be the statewide driver's license photo database. You know, for a private entity, they might bring a, might be that they're trying to control access to a sensitive location in their facility. And so they have a, a database of faces of employees who are intended to be there, or maybe they're, you know, looking out for some block list of people who aren't supposed to enter. Well, Clearview has developed a face recognition algorithm, but they also offer their own matching database, which has been assembled in what we think is a tremendously abusive and illegal way, which is that they have been scraping the internet for as many photos of people's faces as they can find. At last I heard, they were up to 30 billion photos of people, which they download into their system and then run through their face recognition algorithm to extract people's face prints, right? These are unique biometric 
signatures that correspond to your individual face. And this is done through its, you know, its black box machine learning algorithms that are trained over time by ingesting huge quantities of data, what features of a face to compute on to identify some uh, unique face print for that face that then can be matched against other photos to identify that these two photos, two different photos of the same person are the same person or not. So, so Clearview has assembled this humongous face print database without notifying people, without getting people's consent. And then they began selling access to that to basically anyone who would buy it. So certainly law enforcement agencies, but also private companies from retail chains and sports stadiums and private investigators and banks and many others. Well, it turns out that uh, the state of Illinois has for more than a dozen years now had a very strong biometric privacy law on the books, the Biometric Information Privacy Act. It's known as BIPA. And it was, it was passed before face recognition technology had advanced beyond very rudimentary kind of test algorithms. But what it does is it, it requires private companies, if they want to collect or use someone's biometric identifiers, which could be a fingerprint or an iris scan or a palm print or a face print, the company first has to tell you, provide notice, and they have to get your express written opt-in consent. Clearview manifestly was not doing this when it was scraping these billions of photos of people off the internet. And so uh, it was violating Illinois law when it did that for Illinois residents. We sued Clearview under this Illinois statute representing a number of organizations in Illinois who were, were suing on behalf of their members or their service recipients. And these are organizations that, that represent or work with people who have very particular privacy concerns from this kind of technology. So uh, one of the organizations is called Mujeres Latinas in Acción. It's a, a group that provides social services to Latinas in the greater Chicago area, including programs for survivors of domestic abuse and sexual assault who have tremendous uh, privacy concerns if they are trying to you know, escape an abusive relationship. It also has a program that works with undocumented Latinas across the Chicago area who have real concerns about, about privacy and tracking. A couple of the plaintiff groups worked with current and former sex workers who, again, have, have real safety concerns tied to the ability to maintain privacy as they, they go about their lives, often to, to shield their legal name as they interact with clients. And there can be really dire consequences when they're not able to do that. So we, we sued Clearview, alleging that they had violated on a systemic, huge basis this Illinois law. And we, we won at the motion to dismiss stage. We defeated their motion to dismiss. And then we're able to reach a, a very strong settlement with the, the company that prohibits them nationwide from providing the service to any private entity. So any of those companies that have been buying or testing their product before are barred. Also, there's a five-year bar on Clearview working with Illinois law enforcement of any kind. What Clearview is still allowed to do because the statute in Illinois has a loophole for government uses is to work as a contractor for law enforcement around the country outside of Illinois. And so what Clearview has done is they've really transformed their business model to try to be working just with police and other government agencies to provide this humongous face recognition database where they they purport that in proportional materials, they've written that their goal is to be able to, to identify 95% of humans on earth in a very short time period by scraping enough of these, these photos and extracting face prints from online. That to the ACLU is just a chilling assertion of power in anyone's hands, but particularly in government hands. And we think it's totally inappropriate for, for the government to be using it. 
Now, the CEO of Clearview AI made public statements around the time, essentially citing the First Amendment to defend the company's indiscriminate scraping of billions of face images from public-facing websites. Is there any merit to this claim? Well, you know, we we agree with Clearview that they have a First Amendment right to scrape photos off, to the, off the publicly available internet. But part of the reason it was important for us to litigate these issues in, in the court in Illinois is that the ACLU is now more than a century old. And from our very founding, it has been a core principle of the ACLUs to defend First Amendment free speech rights in this country, right? So we we are are no shrinking violet on, on strict assertion of First Amendment free speech rights. But, but to us, Clearview's First Amendment defense that they raised in that case goes too far. And, and if they are right, then we just couldn't have privacy laws, right? So what we argued and what the court agreed with us on was that, sure, it, it is fine. It is protected by the First Amendment to scrape photos off the internet. But what Clearview is doing is more than scraping photos off the internet. What they're doing is extracting our immutable, unique face prints, our biometric identifiers from those photos. That's not information that is publicly available in the way they're deriving it, right? Like, yes, yeah, sure, if my photo's online, you can browse over to it and see my face, but you're not extracting my unique biometric identifier, this algorithmically derived representation that is unique to me and that can be compared instantaneously against every other face print in a database. What we argued and what the court agreed with us on is that that's, that's actually conduct, that's not speech. Now it's conduct that is tied to speech, right? What Clearview wants to do after extracting those face prints is then be able to say, this photo is the same as that photo, or this photo is of Nate, or that photo is not of Nate. And so the First Amendment has a role to play, right? It's not that there's no First Amendment analysis, but the government's interest, the state of Illinois' interest here in protecting the privacy and security of its residents' biometric identifiers is important enough that, that this regulation can stand. And it's important to remember, this is not a ban on collecting biometric identifiers, right? It's a notice of consent requirement, right? So a company that wants to do something with face prints just has to get people's consent, right? If you want to, you know, you want to provide a product that relies on face recognition, let people opt into it and go to town. But what Clearview is doing is secretive, it's without consent, and it is just on a scale that is is almost inconceivable. And, and that we think is not protected by the First Amendment, and they should have to abide by that notice and consent requirement. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that ACLU also filed a lawsuit on behalf of the South Carolina NAACP to challenge a categorical ban on scraping public court records. And I do think this raises a really interesting, bigger question. Data brokers present privacy risks, but could any new restrictions on information flows potentially come into tension with free speech or free expression, especially given the fact that many data brokers do share information that is potentially aggregated from public sources like websites or even government records or data brokers can also share de-identified information. So where do we draw the line between speech ends and conduct begins? Is it consent, like you mentioned, or transparency or just the sheer scale of this, of these, of these transactions? Yeah, it, it's a great question and one that's really central to some of the debates about how to, you know, enact strong and effective consumer privacy laws, right? That, you know, there's a robust debate in Congress last year. There's debates ongoing in, in a bunch of state legislatures this year. Um, it can be hard to, to directly regulate data brokers, right? You, legislators really have to get the language exactly right. And, and part of why it is hard is 
it's hard to define what a data broker is in a way that doesn't also include, say, a newspaper, right? You know, an entity that has gotten information, personal information about someone from some other source and wants to do something with it, maybe even for profit, right? I mean, the New York Times is, they are profiting off of the news, right? That's their business model. And so, you know, it, it's not hard to think of lots of examples of regulation that's supposed to target data brokers that actually chokes off, you know, real information sharing and debate and and news gathering and, and news reporting. And that certainly would not be consistent with our First Amendment guarantees. You know, the the best and easiest way to protect people's privacy, thinking about data brokers, is to choke off their abusive sources of data in the first place, right? Consumer privacy legislation that protects people's data at the source and means, for example, that those apps can't just willy-nilly be selling our location information onto the data brokers, that would over time just kill the abusive parts of the data broker market. And, and it's much easier to avoid those First Amendment concerns when you're regulating the, the so-called first party companies that we have a direct relationship with, right? You can require consent and notice, right? You can, uh, you can ban certain kinds of transactions with our data from companies that are directly interacting with us. And those are all kind of normal consumer protection regulations that we've seen in other, other spheres too, you know, say places like the Fair Credit Reporting Act or, or others that are trying to protect us against predatory practices by companies by making sure we know what data they're taking directly from us and what they're going to do with it and locking down the bad uses. Yeah, speaking of legislation, we've seen probably dozens of bills introduced over the last couple of Congresses that aim to regulate how private companies collect, process, and share personal information. We've also seen bills that aim to address how U.S. government agencies interact with data brokers, like the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act. We've also seen other bills that are intended to prevent foreign government access to data. Now, just to be very realistic, we, we also are dealing with a very politicized Congress right now where it is difficult to pass comprehensive systemic legislation. And I was wondering, do you think that this issue, data broker privacy, is a partisan issue? Or have we finally found something that both parties can get behind? I think there's there's really demonstrated bipartisan support for these kinds of privacy initiatives. You know, when we're when we're talking about law enforcement access to this information, there's a real coming together of conservatives, including libertarians, and of liberals and progressives who are concerned about government overreach. And the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act has bipartisan sponsorship, right? And last in the last Congress, when there was a hearing, about the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act and some related legislation. You had members of both parties very concerned about, for example, the some of the information we learned from the FOIA requests from DHS about access to location information from data brokers. So there's there's more than potential, right, for for bipartisan coming together. We've we've seen it. We've seen it at the state level too, where you have, uh, you know, in Illinois, for example, that Biometric Information Privacy Act, it passed unanimously, right? I mean, Illinois obviously is a blue state, but there are plenty of Republican members of that legislature. And there was not a single dissenting vote there. So so absolutely, privacy issues touch all of us. And, and there can be a real coming together across the political spectrum in support of them. We just need to get the momentum to move it to the top of the pile. Um, I think that's, that's really the challenge. And the reality is these problems are only getting worse. And so the urgency of dealing with them becomes greater every day. 
Now, I also want to talk about some of the biggest hurdles that these proposals face. And there are some in the intelligence or the law enforcement community who argue that they need this data for public safety initiatives, or they need this data for national security, or that even curbing U.S. government access to data brokers could hurt competition against China. How would you respond to these concerns? We've been having these same debates for centuries in this country, and law enforcement intelligence agencies always want more latitude. And it's the job of civil society and lawmakers and judges and the press to shine a light and and make sure that there's some weight on the other side of the balance. It's It's easy for some of those agencies to invoke kind of broad concerns about national security and law enforcement, getting the bad guys. But there, there are lots of tools to do that going through appropriate legal channels with protections, right? The warrant requirement is tried and true. It's It provides protection. It introduces some friction into the system. But it's by no means a bar to law enforcement getting information and real investigations, right? There are thousands of warrants that are obtained probably daily in this country by state and federal and local officials. And judges are very quick in dealing with them. And when there's real probable cause, then the government can get the information. The problem is when we when we start dealing with truly dragnet collection about everyone, just the, the potential for abuse goes through the roof, right? Uh, it's just so dangerous to, to take these government agencies just trust us rationale at face value. Uh, we need to be skeptical because we've seen abuses before and abuses will happen in the future unless there are real protections with real teeth. That's a good reminder for all of us, I think, why we need transparency and accountability, but most importantly, guardrails when it comes to government surveillance and government access to data. So thank you, Nate, for joining us. Thank you for sharing your expertise. And also thanks for all the work that you're doing to both litigate and advocate on behalf of stronger privacy and civil liberties protections. For more information on this topic, I encourage everybody to check out the ACLU website, the ACLU has a lot of great resources, and you can also check out the CSAS website and our new report on this topic, Surveillance for Sale. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.